Sex is the number one and number two most pleasurable thing you can experience globally. That it doesn't matter where you ask this question. It doesn't matter in what language or what gender you're asking. It's number one and number two. It's wild. My, my life has been a wild ride. I think I've lived two lifetimes and I'm still only halfway. There's a lot of haters. There's people out there who simply don't like different groups that don't like who you are, what you've chosen to be or do. I'm so excited because I'm like, you two have a great sex life and you're gonna be happily married for a long time. Welcome to In Search of Excellence, where we meet entrepreneurs, CEOs, entertainers, athletes, motivational speakers, and trailblazers of excellence with incredible stories from all walks of life. My name is Randall Kaplan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and the host of In Search of Excellence, which I started to motivate and inspire us to achieve excellence in all areas of our lives. My guest today is Brandy Love. Brandy is one of the most famous and successful adult film actresses of all time. She has started more than 800 movies and her videos have been streamed more than a billion times. She has been nominated for and won 12 adult industry awards and is the author of the book, Getting Wild Sex from Your Conservative Woman. She is also the owner of Traffic Stop Media and also owns a real estate business with her husband that renovates distressed properties and then either flips or keeps them. Brandy, it's a true pleasure to have you on my show. Welcome to In Search of Excellence. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Okay, so you were born in Dearborn, Michigan, the great state of Michigan where, as you know, I'm also from. And you said you grew up in a normal family, a cool family with cool parents. What were your parents like and what kind of values did they instill in you when you were a kid? Um, I had a great childhood. I wouldn't say it was perfect. Very few people can. So that would be that would be unfair to say. But I I was very loved. I was very cared for. I was given every opportunity to learn, to um, excel, to be adventurous. Uh, every athletic thing that I wanted to do, my parents supported me. So what kind of things athletically did you do? Well, I started ice skating when I was four years old. What like, what rink did you go to? <laughs> called the park rink they would flood the park and we would all ice skate and i would have my little dual blades and pushing a chair that's how it started and i ended up ice skating until basically where i would have made the decision to go into the olympics to try to train for the olympics i was the one skating at five in the morning before school and i would go to the rink after school and the only thing that that deterred me from that was um going into high school boys of course. And then sports. I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to play tennis. I ran track and I did all of those things. So I, um, probably my first passion was ice skating and my issue was maybe lack of focus, but I loved everything. So I was good at almost everything I wanted to do. I was never great. You were competitive. You wanted to win. You're still, a, <laughs> we're going to talk about that in a little while. But what was your dream when you were growing up as a kid? Honestly, as a kid, the, the one I remember was being an Olympic ice skater. I, I still watch the figure skating aspect of the Olympics, so I still have a, a love for it. It was a huge part of my childhood, and it's, um, I think it's what taught me discipline. So you're in high school. You mentioned boys. You like boys. Was that a, one of your primary focuses, or did you have a lot of girlfriends? Well, uh, I wasn't, no, it was never a primary focus. I always remember having a boyfriend. I was um, a serial monogamous dater. I never dated. I'd have a date and then I would be in a relationship for six months to a year. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a stability thing, I suppose. But I had a lot of friends. But my primary thing was athletics. 
I did well in school so that I could run track because we had coaches that if you didn't get a 3.2 or whatever the, the GPA was or whatever grades you had to get, couldn't run. And I was going to run. Like you were that. fast. I was. I was pretty quick. Um, I was actually, yeah, I was pretty quick. So that was, thank God for sports. That's probably how I got into college. You went to Plymouth Salem High I School. Did. We played you Detroit Country Day. We usually got our asses kicked. I think you were. Uh, <laughs> we were really good. Yeah. <laughs> we were really. Yeah, good. you were on the schedule, but it, it, it was never fair. I think we're a Class C school. You were a Class A, so uh, better athletes, bigger school. But when you when you were there, did you uh, do things besides skate and go out with your friends? Was there was there a focus you wanted to be in in life? Did your dreams change from when you were a kid and you no longer knew you wanted to skate? Um, well, you know, what's funny. I still ice skate. I still have my original ice skates from when I was a competitor, same size foot. So I will still go just for fun. It, it, that's a passion that's never changed. You use the same skates. Yeah. They're, they're like uh, jeans. You don't get rid of them when they're perfectly worn in. They're a few decades old. Yeah. There are better skates like today. <laughs> there are better no, skates today. No, there aren't? Mm -mm, no, the be they're still the best boots in the world, best blades. They just, it's classic. So I'll never get rid of them. <laughs> okay, so you're focused on getting good grades. You had to have a 3.2. Tell us about how you ended up at CMU. I know your mom went there. Your dad, of course, went to of Better course. School, University of Michigan. Yeah. Greatest yeah. school on earth. Yeah, I didn't but get what, my dad's brains. <laughs> what, was, what was the motivation to go to college? And what was the thought when you were there? I know one of the things you said, you said is you wanted to get a 3.5 and work out every day for two hours a day. You're a fitness nut. Yeah, um, I still am. I love fitness. It's part of my life. But in college, I was, I was probably a little bit too extreme. I really followed like muscle mag and I, I trained like I was a bodybuilder, even though I had no aspirations of being a bodybuilder. I just loved the look and I loved the discipline. I never had the uh, foundation to get big enough to compete. I thought I was all big and tough. And they're like, you're puny. You're going to get crushed. So thank God bikini modeling and figure modeling came along. So that became more of a kept me healthy. Um, and I didn't compete in college. Very quickly, I realized what I said earlier is that I was good at a lot of things that I wasn't going to be great. Knowing that, I was like, okay, um, that's not going to, athletics isn't going to pay for my life. That's not going to be a career for me. So that's where the refocus became business. I, I, I took the passion part and made it about business, knowing that that would, that would allow for a financially viable future. Um, you wanted, though, at some point to be a bodybuilder. And were you building bulk at the time? Or just you want to be trim, lean, and mean? All of it, which is impossible, which right. is the issue. So I was always balancing, what am I going for? I'd get too bulky and, oh, I didn't like that. Then I'd trim down and I'm like, oh, I need more muscle. I'm still kind of that way. I think that's a female thing. We're never satisfied. You're focused on business then in college. Yeah. You focused, I think, on business administration. And you had another major, but you didn't graduate? I started with dietetics and sports nutrition. And three years in, I realized that that was going to be not only extremely difficult to get accepted into the sports nutrition program at CMU, which was excellent, but that the salaries were capped. I started a little late doing the research on what does this mean in five years? What does this mean in 10 years? And I, I was not happy with what I was seeing. So I went with a general business degree, which was a very wise move because I use it every day. 
And you graduated. Mm-hmm. I finished up my final year at FAU because my husband and I got married and moved down to Florida. So let's talk about meeting your husband in college. Okay. Uh, what I, I know what you guys were up to, where'd you meet, and then what happened after that? It's very cliche, and it's so funny today, but he was a bouncer and I was a bartender. That's how we met. And it... Who approached who? Who asked who out on the first date? Well, I, I definitely let him know I was interested. I mean, there was eye contact, and I didn't know what he looked like except for from here down because it was a crowded room. I was on the dance floor with my girls and I saw this gorgeous human being in the corner and I, I couldn't stop staring at him. And I'm like, I don't know who that is, but I have to find out. And so I was week after week, I would go to this club because I knew he'd be there and try to make eye contact and ask questions. And it got back to him. And thankfully, he kind of did the head nod when I was on the dance floor. And I'm like, OK, you know, I walk over there. It was instant. It was literally instant. He gave me his phone number in a matchbox, which like a true dork, I still have. It was the beginning of um, the rest of my life, to be fair. And what year in college did you guys meet? And then My first year. So you dated all four years? He met a freshman. That's always difficult. He's three years older than me. So okay. I was the freshman just coming up. And, I'm, and fair, fairly for him, he was like, we dated. It went zero to 60. And he pulled back because, you know, I'm still getting my I'm still getting grounded in college and he's there. He's ready to go. We broke up for. Five or six months felt like a lifetime. And you still loved him the whole oh, time. Yeah, I, he broke I knew up with he you? was the you one. Broke up with him? He, he broke up with me, if I remember correctly. There was a family tragedy and, and we just, it you know, things we got separated and um we met in a hallway back at CMU, and it was like a, a double take. That was it. We were married like nine months later. So from that point on through the rest of college, you had a monogamous relationship with your husband. Mm-hmm. And you never even thought about what you ended up doing at that point. No, we're going to get into that. We were both jealous. So absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you were jealous. Oh, God, so yeah. when you talked to another girl at the time, you were like, hey, man, I'm not, I'm not happy with that. Don't look at her. Yeah, no, I didn't like that. And he was the same way. Okay. So Mm -hmm. he graduates three years before you do. And then you go into the corporate world. You did a whole bunch of things. You're super motivated. You love business. You Mm -hmm. managed a bagel store. I did. And you worked at a staffing agency. I did. And then tell us about those jobs and then tell us about Harley Davidson. The bagel store was awesome. It was really, really fun. I hated getting up at four in the morning to let the baker in. But um, it taught, again, taught me discipline. It taught me everything that college didn't to be fair um the real life stuff keeping the books getting employees to show up on time uh i managed all of that doing bank drops and balancing the books and ordering product um, for the bagel store yeah. and i think i was 21 it was it was a lot but i loved it and i was recruited from that job by the staffing agency owner who I just saw basically every day, she'd come in for her bagel orders and she's like, hey, you know, I've been watching you. And I'm like, well, that's creepy. <laughs> what do you mean you've been watching me? It was a compliment. My work ethic and I was never not there. You know, I wasn't the one calling in. You could always count on me. She noticed and she offered me a really great job that, again, took my business acumen to the next level because that was a hard, I was knocking down doors to get, for the staffing agency to get corporate 
um, businesses to take our employees. It was a lot of rejection <laughs> and it, it thickened my skin to be fair. I do a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring. I have uh, interns every summer, usually between 32 and 36. They want to light up the world and it's hard to get a job with our program in the summer. I don't think there's one out there. I'm talking about the kids who work at Goldman Sachs and that's their dream, who would get up and get to work at four in the morning. I mean, that says a tremendous amount about you. Why, why did you do that? You must have been the only person in your class out of, I assume, thousands of people who took a job at a bagel store getting in at four o'clock in the morning. You'd have to go to bed at what? Seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night? You really need sleep. I don't remember. Um, but my, you know, my husband did have a corporate job. So, you know, there was a few years there where we were like ships the night and that was really hard on us. But I, I took the job because one, we'd always have our evenings together. You know, his was more nine to five Monday through Friday. He had some travel, but it was stable. And by taking this management position, one, I loved the idea of being a manager. I wanted to know what that was like. I knew that I would obtain a tremendous amount of on-site education. And two, I was like, ooh, this was down in Florida. Um, we moved to Florida right after we got married. I was excited to have the afternoons because I could go to the beach, lay out. So I'm home at three o'clock. Everybody else is still two, three, four hours of work. And that was the motivator, if I'm being honest. <laughs> go to the beach. Yeah, get home early and have, a, have an actual evening to do what I wanted with and to spend time with Chris. It's interesting, you go to the bagel store. When I first moved to LA, I lost my job. The only job I could get was in Costa Mesa. And I drove, I had to get to work. I, I usually would leave at 5.30 in the morning and I'd hit the bagel store first. I'd wait for the bagels to come out. Because the only thing open. It's the only thing open. <laughs> and I remember I get two Sesame Street bagels with cream cheese. And by the time I got down to Costa Mesa, the Sesame Seeds would be in my teeth throw my card. And I used to see Suge Knight at the, ba at the bagel store three mornings a week. He was with this dude. He would leave his uh, Bronco, wide open Bronco with the music blaring. <laughs> Who's going to say anything? And, and, and for the six months that I had that job, I would see him. But it, it's interesting. The first person you greet in the morning, that's your mood, right? On my way here, I went to Starbucks, this guy, David, was at the counter. I mean, he was just full of energy, smiling, excitement. I mean, it made me happier when it's I left contagious. the store. It's contagious. It's contagious. So you must have had great people skills at a young age. This episode of In Search of Excellence is brought to you by Sandy.com. S-A-N-D-E-E.com. We're a Yelp for beaches and have created the world's most comprehensive beach resource by cataloging more than 100 categories of information for every beach in the world. More than 100,000 beaches in 212 countries. Sandy.com provides beachgoers around the world with detailed, comprehensive, and easy-to-use information to help them plan their perfect beach getaway at home and abroad and to make sure you're never disappointed by a beach visit again. Plan the perfect beach trip today by visiting sandy.com. That's www.sandee.com. The link is in our show notes. Stay sandy, my friends. Because no one's going to recruit you to do an executive search job or a staffing job if you weren't great with people. Um, I that's fair. And I would say naturally looking back, I think I was more of an extrovert when I was younger than I am even now, which is weird considering what I do. Um, but, you know, life can do that to you.
I was very young, um, wild-eyed. I love, I still love people, but uh, I definitely did have a zest for life and for people and adventure. I'm a very curious person. So those things kind of get you into conversations with all sorts because you're, I'm open to hearing. I'm open to listening and learning. Always have been. You talk about calling people, getting rejected all the time. I think getting rejected from cold calling skills is one of the greatest experiences. I, I never could ever had have. a job that made yeah. me cry. Yeah. That one did. Yeah. And thankfully, my husband had done it as well. So he was tough as nails. And he was like, you got this. You can do this. And you have no idea how much this is going to help you later in life. And it's true. Everyone should have to do that. So it, it's funny you say that. Um, normally what I tell people is my dad told me something a long time ago and he said, if you go up to someone a hundred times and the first 99 people say no and the hundred person says yes, you'll forget about you the do. first 99. Now I say that I sort of. clean it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, sort of. I mean, I clean it uh, a bit, but I was kind of a gawky, um, nerdy kid and I remember I said, there's this woman that I really like. Her name is Robin, Robin Bolton, if you're listening and I want to take her out. And she wouldn't uh, go out with me and said, hey, uh, you know what? Go up to 100 girls and said, hey, do you want to have sex with me? And they all say, no, you'll feel bad. But when the 100 girl says that she wants to have sex with you, you'll forget okay. about the other 99. So good. So, so I've good. now told the story. I haven't whitewashed it. And there's, <laughs> there's the story. It's true. So, all right. Tell us about Harley Davidson. And how you got there. Do you like bikes or they just recruited you for a job you liked? I had a motorcycle. What kind? I had a, um, my first bike was a Kawasaki Ninja. Uh, my parents disliking, of course. I, I was very much a tomboy uh, and not, I don't, I always wore dresses and I loved girly stuff, but I also loved to get on four wheelers and throw mud and, and, and play the sports with the boys. And I don't know. Probably part of my personality is if somebody says, you probably shouldn't do that, or girls don't do that. I went, oh, really? And I would go do that. So, you know, my grandmother wanted me to play the piano. I wanted the saxophone. Girls don't ride motorcycles. 17 years old, I bought my first bike. So I think there's a little bit of a rebellious streak, <laughs> if I were to just guess, in me that that was just part of my adrenaline rush. Um, it was exciting. It was fun. I didn't know any other women that had motorcycles, so I enjoyed that very much. And we had moved out to Colorado from Florida for Chris's job. Well, actually, we were able to live anywhere because his job required travel. And we decided um, my father had taken us out to Colorado Springs to this beautiful retreat. And we fell in love with the area and we moved. We came home to Fort Lauderdale at the time. Packed up, drove out west, and lived in, in Colorado. What part of Colorado? In the Springs. We lived right in the Springs. And um, that's where I got the bagel job. After about two years, we wanted to come back east. We're just East Coast kids to our core. It, it was beautiful. We had an adventure, but we wanted to come back. And I started looking at, your listeners are going to laugh because nobody does this anymore, but I was looking at the Help Wanted ads in the back of a newspaper for Raleigh, for, for North Carolina specifically, because in our minds, born in Michigan, married and moved to Fort Lauderdale. Now we're out West. We're not going back to where we've already been. We needed something new. Smack dab in the middle is North Carolina. Didn't know anybody, didn't have family there. It just geographically made sense. 
So that's where we were going to move. And um, I had some newspaper sent to me. I'm looking through the help wanted ads. And instantly my eyes light up. And Chris is like, what, what do you see? I said, Davidson is hiring. I didn't even know what for position. It didn't matter. I circled that and I started calling. I was going to get that job. And I had like, I think four phone interviews, sent them my resume. And they, they agreed to hold the job for me because it was going to be about two weeks before I lived there. They held the job for me. And I had that job for years. What, what was the job and what were you doing? Sales. I was selling Harleys. So you were working in a dealership? And you would, someone would walk in, you'd have the Harley t-shirt on or the black Harley jacket on. and No, I, uh, I dressed honestly more like this. <laughs> I, I, I just dressed like me and they didn't have a uniform. It was a sales, sales job. There were three or four of us on the floor. Um, I worked six days a week. If they were open, I was there. Because if you're not there, you don't get the deal. And if I talked to you on Monday and knew you were coming back on Tuesday or Wednesday, if I'm not there, the other salesperson close the deal. You didn't get a cut or a no. split when that happened? Mm -mm. You close it. That's how it worked. So I was never afraid to work hard. You said there were four salespeople on four. the floor? Mm -hmm. What was the male-female ratio? I was the only female. There's a pattern here. Yeah. But, well, I'm <laughs> curious. The Harley riders, would they rather buy from a beautiful woman or a Harley rider who works in the store? Well, we would have to ask them to get to the bottom of it, but I was the number one salesperson for every month I, I worked there. Amazing. So Bye. it didn't hurt. What, what do you attribute your success as a salesperson to? I didn't, it, did not, it did not work against me that I was the only female. Um, but I also, I was extremely driven. I knew the product. I loved the product. And I was excited to sell them. I was, I was selling a dream. I mean, to be honest, anybody that walks into a Harley dealership already wants one. They just didn't know they were going to leave with one. That was my job. <laughs> what was the commission on a bike back then? And do you remember the average price? Because Harleys are very expensive bikes. They are. And we sold ours for even more. Um, it was because you had a short supply and people Correct. had to pay a premium? Correct. And, and I, worked for, I worked for Ray Price Harley-Davidson. He's a famous drag racer. So we, we really had a lot of perks. He got more bikes than most. So we actually had inventory. Everybody else was had, on lists. Like you'd call for a Harley and like, dude, there's like 12 pages of names, but we'll get you on the list. We'll take your 500 bucks, call you when it's ready. Our people, you come in the door, I'm selling you that bike. Like you can have it today. There was no waiting list. So it was, um, it, I was, I was just, I'm motivated. And they were very smart in that, like for the first, 10 bikes you sell a month, you get $150. Doesn't, I mean, it was more then. It sounds so little now, but I, it was a lot. But what I cared about was after 10, because now you get 250. Over 15, you would get 500. So my goal was to get to 15 as quickly as humanly possible so that every bike thereafter, I was making real money. Everything we do is about sales. And I stress that to everyone I meet and mentor. It doesn't matter. Everything we do. From the Starbucks gentleman, David, I when I walk in the that. door, to meeting someone on the street, to managing people, and to being managed as well. All right, so let's move on. I want to talk about now, you are at Harley. Your husband is the youngest VP ever, I think, at a biotech company, 24 years old. And he's traveling all the time, 250 days a year, 150 the, the, days a year. Yeah, the first like eight years was a tremendous amount of travel. 
So walk us through your relationship at the time, what you were thinking in terms of your long-term plans, and then talk about how it took a little bit of a turn with a wet t-shirt contest, I believe, or <laughs> something. And, and I, I think we need to back up for a moment because I think at that point you already had a daughter. Yeah, the timeline. Ooh, it's a wild. My, my life has been a wild ride. I think I've lived two lifetimes and I'm still only halfway. Um, we had, we've always had an exceptionally strong relationship. I mean, it's, it sounds cliche, but I met my soulmate. There's no doubt in my mind that he was made for me and me for him. So even when things were difficult in the sense that he was gone a lot, um, we supported each other. I, I did what I had to do. He did what he had to do. And when we were together, we were a family. You know, I, I, I always saw him as highly motivated. He's incredibly intelligent. I mean, you don't get to be the VP of a biotech company at that age by, by being lazy or um, incapable. You know, 24 years old, having board meetings with doctors and VPs of hospitals. So both very driven. We're both type A, both very driven. So I don't know that in the early stages we thought about our financial future. We just love to work. We love to earn. We love to build. Um, so, yeah, we just, you know, 50, 60 hours a week from the very beginning, regardless of what job we had. That's just the way it was. And very monogamous, very secure. 100% monogamous. 100% monogamous. I take back the secure part because when he was traveling, I mean, I, I married an absolutely devastatingly handsome man. So as a woman who he's traveling all the time, I was the, I was insecure. And I wasn't at all until one girlfriend said to me one time, she said, your husband's really fine. You're not worried about him having chicks in every city? And I'm like, What? Like, it, I'd never considered it because our relationship was so, per, it was perfect. And that one color friend, it's not a very friendly thing to say, but it changed me into a very insecure and jealous person. Just like that. that one comment. Yeah. So I became a little bit of a psycho checking his phone and looking for, looking for things to catch him on, which was so not me. And Did that cause, he knew you were doing it, it caused a lot of friction in the well, relationship? Well, first he thought it was funny because he knew he was being loyal. He thought yeah. this was just a phase and it didn't go away fast enough. So it became unfunny. And of course it causes a rift because when you're not doing anything wrong, but you're constantly being accused, you're going to resent. There's going, there's going to be a lot of emotions that come up. So yeah, that, that was a problem. And ultimately it it came to a head and we did the best thing that we could have done in the moment. There's some other pieces, but we decided to see a marriage counselor. And um, that changed our lives back on track. And the thing that I remember so much about that, this was after our baby, which added another dimension to that. But this I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth time we went to therapy. We only went like six times. They basically kicked us out and said, you guys are good. Like, you're good. But like the second or third time, they stopped and looked at us and said, wow, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I just need a moment. I've never had a couple be more brutally honest ever in, in a session. And we looked at each other and then looked at them. And we're like, isn't that why we're here? It was a very, it was a very pivotal moment because 
we are that honest, which is why I believe we're happily married 28 years later. What was the, if you could nail it down to one piece of advice the therapist gave you to overcome your jealousy, what would, what was that piece of advice? There is one that I'll never forget. It was have no plan B's. Never, ever, ever. And we made a pact. (laughs) It was like a pinky swear. It's like, it's a pinky pact in the car. Never, 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 no plan B's. I will never leave you. You'll never be alone. I will never deceive, backstab, betray. And um, that was it. So once the, the no plan B was accepted by both of us, the world became our oyster. It's our playground. And it's he and I against the world. As an entrepreneur and a founder and a venture capitalist, that's, that's what you want to hear. There is no plan B. I'm going to make it. I'm going to win. And I think that's a great lesson for all the listeners out there, the viewers. Uh, don't have a plan B because if you're thinking about the plan B, you're not going to You're really, not 100% vested. You're that's not 100% correct. vested. You're always looking over your shoulder or your brain is clicking if that doesn't work out. You always want to have the mentality, this is going to work out no matter what. And it's interesting you brought that up about in, in the sense of a relationship, but you're a thousand percent right. I approach almost probably every single business endeavor the same way. There is no, there is no fail. This, if I'm getting involved, if I'm choosing to invest my time, I am investing in you. I'm investing in this business. I am not going to let it fail. And of course they do. Sometimes businesses just don't work out. But what comes after that is even better. That's been my experience. The, the things that do fluff away and weren't meant to be the actual business go away. And the next thing from all the lessons is like, oh my God, that's what that was about. It's even better. 100%. I believe you learn more from your failures than you do your wins. And I've always said that as well. I mean, we sometimes we get lucky on the way up yeah. and things should never work and they do work. And sometimes <laughs> the things true. that you think are going to work, there'll be a dunk, uh, are the worst things, worst uh, deals I've ever done, worst yeah. founders that I've ever backed. So, so you never know. But I think it's important to learn from your mistakes. Uh, and no not matter, forget them so you don't do them again. Try not to make them the same time. Uh, Time to make them the second time. So tell us, when did, when did you have... Are you looking for your next great gift to surprise a friend, colleague, or loved one? Bliss Beaches makes the perfect gift. This best-selling bright and beautiful coffee table book by Randall Kaplan features stunning drone photography from exotic beach locations around the world. It's the perfect housewarming gift, a great addition to any home or office, and a fun and creative alternative to bringing a bottle of wine to somebody's house for dinner. Bliss Beaches is available for purchase on Amazon, where it has glowing reviews and a five-star rating. Get your next amazing gift and order a copy of Bliss Beaches by clicking the link on our show notes. Crystal traveling? He was still traveling. Uh, she was born in 2000 and still traveling. And it was around her first birthday that he, he started looking for another job. It, it's hard. It's really hard when you love your family and you're watching your children grow from photos. You know, and, and I, I, her first steps is the one that really did it. First birthday was tough to not be there. And then when she took her first steps. He has video of it, but he's like, that's it. Yeah. I want to be home more. That's a big one. Yeah, it was huge. And it was, it was for him too. Um, he'd put in his time and we were lucky to be in a position where we could afford to venture off into our own company, which we did. So you started a wine label yeah. company at that point called Creative... Grapevine Greetings. Grapevine Greetings. Tell us about that. And then your husband had some health problems as well. So 
walk us through there because I think that's a good transition to to where we're going and what you did to what you do today. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think um, the health issue came first. He he was traveling. There were times he'd be on the road 21 days doing his laundry at laundromats <clears throat> on the road, and he would come so young. They just kept pushing, and he kept giving. You know, he just kept giving. And he was closing a contract deal in Las Vegas at a hospital, thank goodness. And he had a stress-induced heart attack. Probably just no sleep, working all the time, you know. And I flew out there, got him home. He, he's okay. He's doing great. He has, he has a few things that followed from that, um, that situation. But we looked at each other and we said, it's time. Like, we need our own company. This, this corporate America is going to kill you. Um, I was at home raising our daughter at the time. I was kind of itching to get back into the business, not leave her, but be able to use my adult time, my brain, and, and do something. It just seemed like the perfect opportunity. We love wine. We gift wine. We're, we receive wine all the time. And that's what created Grapevine Greeting is one night we went and pulled a bottle from the cellar and we didn't know who gave us this bottle. We looked it up and it was a gorgeous bottle of wine, like amazing. We know we didn't buy it. So we didn't know who to thank when we drank it. And it was so amazing. So we said, wouldn't that be a cool business to have like greeting cards for wine bottles that like not an actual card, but like you could stick it. And we just kept going. The brainstorm kept going and we created labels that look like a, a, a greeting card that had a, a you know, famous quote and something about wine. And whether it was a birthday, an anniversary, Christmas, and, and there was nothing on the market like it. So our very first business didn't have infrastructure out there. There was no marketing. Nobody knew what it was. So not only did we have to create the product, we had to figure out how to educate the public as to what it even is. So we went for it. <laughs> we really went for it. And it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. All right, so now we're going to switch topics, and we're going to talk about the porn industry. And I want to talk about the definition of porn, and I'm going to look at dictionary.com. And here are the two definitions of porn. Sometimes referred to as porno and pornography. Sexually explicit videos, photographs, writings, or the like, produced to elicit sexual arousal. Television shows, articles, photographs, etc., thought to cater to an excessive irresistible desire or interest for something. So is the Victoria's Secrets ad pornography? What about the millions of beautiful models and sexy photos on Instagram, many of them wearing only skimpy bikinis, and in some cases, almost no bikinis? Or what about the most recent Instagram post from Kendall Jenner, who I think is gorgeous, and who has 294 million Instagram followers? It's a very sexy picture on the cover of this month's issue of W Magazine of her in a thin white tank top where her hands are under her breast, almost lifting it up like she's about to take it off and can be interpreted as something very, very sexy. Is that porn? Well, based on the definition you just gave, it's exceptionally subjective, which if anybody has seen Larry Flint's movie, that is the case that defined it. And I don't know why we want to keep going back to that because it's, it's been defined. It is an art form. It is and can be subjective. And thank God we live in a free country. So it's more of a form of freedom of speech. So do I think that a woman holding up almost about to reveal a nipple is pornography? No, but that doesn't mean you don't. However, I would fight for the right to be able to post it. 
It's interesting to me because under that definition, and I looked at other uh, definitions besides that one, and they're all the same pretty much. And under those definitions, almost everything we see is porn. On Instagram, on the cover of female magazines, in ads for jewelry, and all the most serious magazines, all the men's business magazines, all the women's uh, magazines. So we're What's the dividing line between porn and, and not porn? I think most people would not think that's porn. And at some point, there's some amount of nudity. And it's nudity alone that becomes porn, or is it the nudity and the action that becomes porn? Well, I think the media does a, a really funny mind trick on everybody that it, it, it spews information to. Everyone knows that sex sells. Now, I don't mean the actual act of, but human sexuality. Hence why half-naked women are on the magazine covers. And it's the same media outlets that say, ooh, sex is bad. It, it, it's a total, it's total hypocrisy. Yet we're not going to stop using it because it's numbers. You look at Instagram, that's a really good point. Um, and I have issue with how this goes down because if Instagram's terms and conditions say we're a PG, you know, family oriented, all ages are on here. Too much flesh, you're going to get banned. These are all legitimate things, you know. Too much flesh, they've got algorithms that can take them down. Um, but I've seen things that I'm like, whoa, like, are you kidding me? That's not flagged, but then a person in a one-piece bathing suit is. So um, unfortunately for the adult industry, yes, we can, be, we can push the limits. There's no doubt a lot of people in the adult industry push limits. Um, but it's not the adult industry posting most of the content you're describing right now. It's Kardashians. It's other famous, um, and I'm not mad at them. I, I think they're beautiful too. But they can get away with string bikinis, nipples almost showing, body parts, way more flesh than an adult entertainer. If you are an adult entertainer, you are instantly labeled. And I've had photos flagged for having bare feet. Bare feet, that's not a joke. Win against, win against community guidelines. People know you. The companies know you already. They know sure. porn stars. So sure. you're, you get a footfall, and you're going to get a flag. <laughs> yes. And there's a lot of haters. There's people out there who simply don't like different groups that don't like who you are or what you've chosen to be or do, and they will mass report, even if the photos of you, if I'm in this. And they, they will take it down because of the mass reporting. On Instagram, it's amazing how many beautiful women I see, and they are basically naked. They're, they may be topless, but they have a little blur or a little tassel right over their nipple. And so, therefore... That's what I would call pushing it. <laughs> but, but you see it regularly. they flagged or taken down. Well, some of them do get taken down, but some of them, I know, we had a friend of a friend who is a beautiful woman, and she has a lot of followers, and she was doing that. And it was up for three years or something, and they finally took it down. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see what's on there. All right, so let's talk about some statistics now about the porn industry, and I'm going to go through a whole bunch of them, and I think our viewers and listeners won't know many of these. The global pornography industry is $97 billion a year, $10 billion in the United States, bigger than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. 46 million Americans regularly visit porn sites each month. Our population there is 332 million. That means 14% of our population is watching porn regularly. For ages 18 or over, 18% of the adult population. 
33% of Americans seek out porn at least once a month. 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit pornographic websites at least once per month. 46% of men seek out porn at least once a month. 20% of men and 13% of women access porn at work. 75.8% of Americans have at one point watched porn online. Approximately 35% of all internet downloads are related to pornography. Around 25% of search engine requests are pornography related. There are over 4.2 million adult websites making up 12% of all websites. Internet pornography makes up about 20% of total e-commerce sales in the United States. Around 1.7% of adult women have worked in the pornography industry at some point in their lives. Yet. 66% of young adults age 18 to 24 rarely or never talk to their friends about porn. 55% of adults 25 and older say viewing porn is wrong. 32% of teens and young adults say viewing porn is wrong. And 31% of young adults say porn is bad for society. Sex toy retailer Adam and Eve conducted a survey and discovered that 36% of people lied and denied watching online porn. So what is going on here? I don't issue for sure. Um, I think Americans in general are some of the most sexually repressed. Um, you go to Europe, I bet the, I don't know, but I bet the numbers are a lot lower because they're sexually liberated. They have nude beaches there and they're not walking around with people gawking and staring. It's the human form. It's beautiful. Bodies are gorgeous. Sex is the number one and t- number two most pleasurable thing you can experience globally that it doesn't matter where you ask this question it doesn't it doesn't matter in what language or what gender you're asking it's number 1 and number 2 so the fact that we seek to watch it and to feel an orgasm which is like the best high you can possibly feel though it may last for a short period of time we're always seeking it so none of those numbers surprise me and i think the the people that are denying it for whatever reason, are have been taught to feel shame or guilt over their experiencing their own pleasure and having a sexuality, which if it weren't for sex, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. What's interesting also is the statistics on porn, it's most people watch porn, right? They, I but, would agree. But, but we don't talk about it, right? We certainly don't talk about it at work. I mean, that's, that's well, not appropriate. Do. You do. <laughs> You do, but but I don't, and people in my world, yeah. I, I I don't only do. Well, especially now you don't. Especially now you, you get me too, or you get fired, or yeah. fired, or right. sent to HR at minimum. Sued. <laughs> yes, probably, probably. But, but he, with close friends, sometimes you know you're having a few beers, you make a few jokes, but you know you're at you know, dinner with another couple. No one, no one's really talking about that, right? Oh, what'd you do tonight? Oh, I watched a great sexy porn movie with yeah. my wife. I've I've never had that conversation ever with anybody. And those are my favorite conversations Um, because we we roll in different circles. It makes sense. But you can imagine I I will be in the airport and a couple my age, maybe a little younger, will approach me, a couple. And the wife's like, my God, Brandy, we love your work. And, And I those are my moments where I just glow. I'm so excited because I'm like, you two have a great sex life and you're going to be happily married for a long time. Literally, that's what I, what I think when a couple says that, because they're open, they're sexually adventurous, they're joy-filled, they're having a ball with one another. Um, 
the word porno pornography, it, it's, it's got a stigma. We all know it. And I don't mind using it. It doesn't bother me. It's semantics, but it is adult entertainment. It is a form. It's an art form. It is entertainment. It is meant to be entertainment. They were, you know, we as actors didn't go out to go, oh, this is going to be a great educational film. We didn't do that. The adult industry knows why we're there. It's, it's fantasy. It's for fun. It's to add a spark. It's to, if you need 30 seconds to get to sleep, we got you. It, it was never intended for viewers under 18. So, you know, but then in our society, again, you tell somebody they can't, what are they going to do? They're going to find it. And in the world of the internet, it's become increasingly difficult to, to safeguard your kids. You know, and even if your home is locked down, they take their cell phone to school or one of their friends' parents isn't watching. Right. And, you know, so. Do couples come up to you in an airport with their kids in tow? And no. they say, oh, hi, Brandy. No, no never. not with their children. No, and I've only probably had two experiences in my life where I've been with my family and somebody, um, you know, they beeline. And one of the things that's difficult, I guess, if you want to call it that, being an adult entertainer, the walls come down because it's such an intimate relationship. If you're viewing me for 10 years and you know my films, it's not like being, you know, J-Lo or um, Jennifer Aniston. There is a wall. With adult entertainers, the viewers don't feel that wall because it's such an intimate moment we're having, right? So sometimes they will focus on you and not pay attention to the fact that you're with your family or it's not a good time. And in those cases, I simply say, you know what? I really appreciate you being a fan. I really do, but now's not. What's the percentage of male versus female who come up to you and say, hi, strangers, hi, Brandy, love what you do, or hi, I want to meet you, or hi, I want to take a picture with you? It's changed through the years. It's still predominantly male, but through the years, more and more women have become comfortable. And um, I'm shocked by some of the emails I get from young women, when I say young, anywhere from 20 to my age. And sometimes it's getting to where they're like, how do you keep your love life um, on point at, at our age? How do you, what's your diet like? They get into my fitness routine because they want to look their best at, um, at my age. And so it's, it's interesting, even though I'm an adult actress, I have access to conversations and affecting lives way outside the realm of adult. You mentioned before sex is one of the one number or one two. and number two what what's the second or you're saying it is number one sex, and number two sex and masturbation those, those are, are so i kind of coupled them together but number one and number two sex is number one masturbation is number two is the most pleasurable activities known to humankind you're working in the wine business and you're shooting a video for the wine business and the videographer comes up to you and says brandy have you ever thought about doing this what is the this and then what happened after that it very, very, that's almost how, it, exactly how it happened. We were not um, developers. I didn't know how to build a website. The internet was, is, e-commerce was just getting started in, in a large format. And we didn't know how to build a website, but we needed one. So the company we were put in touch with to build out the wine label business, after knowing us for like two weeks and working diligently side by side to create this website, that's when they said, hey, you guys ever considered doing something in adult? And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't say it out loud, but I'm like, we watch a lot of adult entertainment. What is he talking about? And um, I guess we just have that kind of demeanor. They felt they could throw that out there. And we said, well, exactly what do you mean? 
you know, like an adult website. Like you guys would, would be great. We want to do that. What we found out was they were adult affiliate managers on top of working for this company that builds out websites. I didn't even know what that meant. So we went home, started the research, understanding what does he mean by a business? I always kind of thought they were porn fic- pixies, like they're fairies. They're these beautiful people that just look awesome having sex and I get to enjoy it. I never thought of it as a business. Uh, so that started a journey down three-year, five-year, seven-year plan. How do you make money? What are the costs of starting a website? What is the marketing and advertising? We didn't sleep for days because we got so excited about this. And um, they, they wanted to be a part of this, which they, they had the back knowledge. We had the, the business knowledge. And that formed our first company in adult. When it came time to pick a model, I raised my hand. I, I just thought it was that natural. I just said, well, I'll do it. I trust me. I'll show up. I'll do the work. I know I will. I don't want to invest all this money. You're looking at six figures, even back then, to properly prepare a website and get your hosting and all of that set up. I'll do the work. This, this could be really fun. Like, I got excited. Giddy. So <clears throat> some guy you don't know that well basically says, hey, Granny, you and Chris are great looking people. You got. I don't think they said that, but well, I appreciate okay, that. Okay, okay, but that's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. Because if you're ugly, they wouldn't be asking you to create your own website. So, so you have you have physical gifts and you have wonderful figures. And they said, "Gosh, this would be interesting." And of course, he works in the business, so why not ask, right? If you don't ask, you don't get. And and then you you said, "All right." I mean, did you consider? No. Taking off your clothes <laughs> naked. I'm not talking about just topless, but full no. frontal nudity in front of someone else who wasn't your husband. Was that, was that awkward to think about? Well, I grew up a dancer, um, classically trained ballerina, tap jazz. I was always on stage. The ice skating, you, the skater, is, the whole arena is looking at you. So I never really had a fear of being watched. And, and little to my, I, I didn't know, but I'm I'm as much voyeuristic as I am an exhibitionist. The idea of um, the taking off the clothes, it was going to be a matter of either total fear or total exhilaration. And in my case, it was exhilaration. And to, so the viewers understand, Chris and I had played with the, the lifestyle. That whole no plan B thing when I said that the world became our playground, that was literally a side effect for us. Like we didn't just run out and start having sex with strangers, but we started to research um the whole concept of the lifestyle and uh, because we no longer had fear of losing one another the the fear that the jealousy went it literally went away and it became fun like the whole concept and so we had some experience in the lifestyle when this moment happened so the adult concept wasn't far-fetched it's not like these people went into a church and said hey anybody here want to do a porn site it, he had it. He could tell that we were adventurous. So at at this point, you and Chris had decided to have somewhat of an open marriage where you were having sex with different people. It was always us together with other couples. Okay, never at that point. Never at that point. And you were watching each other while the in sex the acts room. were going on mm-hmm. in in the same room. Mm-hmm. Okay, was it? Heterosexual at that point? A hundred percent. A hundred percent heterosexual. Okay. And so how long had you been doing that at the point in time where you said, all right, I'm, 
I'm going to do this or I'm interested in doing this? Well, it was never about me saying that. It was an us decision. I would never do anything against my husband's will. If he wasn't into it, I wasn't into it. It became something that we were turned on by. The whole concept was fun and exciting for us. So we decided to pursue it. Many couples make home movies. They watch the movies. Had you guys made your own home movies before? Probably. (laughs) I don't remember. It was thousands of movies ago. Um, But And we still do. I mean, so much of my OnlyFans is Chris and I. I mean, there's other content, of course, but he does live cams with me. We do, we shoot content together. So the difference is now we share it. That's the only difference. But, you know, that is a funny thing is you think most couples in our country probably have a homemade sex tape. But because I share mine, you're bad. We've got Pam Anderson. We have Paris Hilton. We have Kim Kardashian. Exactly. I would never shame those people for doing that. But we do as a society. And in some ways, I, um, I gain financially by that. And by the way, when I mention those people, I think it's horrific that someone took something private meant for them and published it online. I think that's, I agree with you, that's but beyond we're also, horrific. We're also assuming that that's how it took place. Let's assume that it did take place that way. I think that it's horrific. That is horrific. I think it's horrific. So Nobody should do that to somebody else. I agree. What's private is private. And it should be. be kept private. Should be. So wasn't there something about Wet T-Shirt Night going before this, before you started this? Before I even met my husband, again, this is that exhibitionist part and not being afraid of being on stage. I, I thrive. I love that energy. I did a bikini contest when I was 18 years old at a local bar in Plymouth, Michigan, and I was probably the youngest contestant. I don't know why I thought this would be a great idea. It just sounded fun and exciting. And I ended up winning. And my best girlfriend at the time and I went on a fully paid cruise to the Bahamas. <laughs> So that, that, that like when I danced for a few years at a men's club, it was so natural for me. I loved it. I, there was, it was just another stage performance. So you were dancing at what would be called a strip bar. A gentleman's club. Yep. Gentleman's club. club. Mm-hmm. No touching allowed. <laughs> it happens, right? Yeah. 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 No touching allowed. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, that's funny because, uh, yeah, touching usually is allowed. You go to a different room for, for the touching. Right. A VIP room. That's uh, correct. A VIP room. Okay. So, um, what is so interesting about your story? I mean, there's so many things. I mean, this is just fascinating. I, <laughs> I love your story. I think it's incredible. You said something when you start out, you looked at the business aspect first. Yeah. You didn't say, Hey, I, I'm going to go make a bunch of sex tapes and figure out what's going on you you said to yourself this is a business yeah and before you even got going you created a, a three plan, five and seven year business mm-hmm. plan pro forma yeah i mean talk to us about that i i think personally that's very unusual when i learned that about you that shocked me do do foreign actresses and actors create business plans before they get in the business probably not i mean i can't say for <laughs> sure but also understand that i came into this industry at 30 years old I had a strong foundation, a wonderful marriage, a happy family. Uh, I'd worked in corporate America. Chris came from corporate America. We're both well-educated. It's how we approach everything. So for me, it was a natural thing to approach the adult industry the way I would any business. Um, The only difference with adult was I literally got to be me. 
like fully exposed, raw, wild, untamed um, me. And the business was the infrastructure, having the performer and knowing how we were going to approach this. Then I just got to be wild. We could wear hair how we wanted, wear clothes, not wear clothes. Um, that's what was so exciting about the adult industry. You know, you make your own hours. You are your own boss. You work as hard as you want and take a day off. It, it, for me, it was the perfect business. Something that I knew I wasn't going to do for a month or two. It wasn't going to get me through school. I'm, I'm through school. It was a, I could do this until they push me off the stage. Like, they're going to have to tell me, B, it's time to go. Like, seriously, it's time to go, like, to the retirement facility. Because I love what I do. And I can't imagine not, not working in, the, in this industry in this capacity. What was on the profile? Well, let's back up for a second. Would you have gone into the business if the profile if the performer numbers didn't work? No. So That would be bad business. So you, you penciled this out. And what were some of the line items in the pro forma revenue. I mean, did you have to calculate how it was much a, you're a basic PL? I mean, cause there was so much we had to learn about the adult industry. Neither right. one of us knew. We learned how to, we, we kept adding items of course, as we learned, but it was a Expense basic items. PL. Expense yeah. items. Yep. Because it's a new business. You don't know. We didn't have any income. We, we could forecast it based on other businesses that we were able to pull data right. from, but it, it was an unknown, but there was no plan B. We were going to make it happen. I mean, technology has changed so much that we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But what was the revenue model back then? How were you going to create your own videos, put up your own website, and then make money? Just that. We built a website, took photos, and posted them online. Back were then, you charging people for oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so, I totally get what you're saying. <clears throat> it was your basic um, solo model site, which is ba it's gone now. But right. back in the 2000s, you join a site, if you like... If you liked me, you go to brandylove.com and you paid your $29.95 and all of my content was yours. Access to me, emails, whatever videos you wanted to watch. It was a totally different format back then. Now we have the OnlyFans concept, which is typically a nominal fee. And then you pay as you go. Right. You buy what you want. You don't buy what you don't want. Um, totally flipped. So I, I know both sides. But um, yeah, it was. it, it literally was... If you build it, I'm not going to say it. That would be rude. <laughs> you got to say, say it. You got to say it. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> and they did. Thank God they did. Um, and I, I think I didn't, I didn't have a marketing degree. That was also self-taught. Just, just from watching what's working, what's not working. How do you drive traffic from here to there? That's when we started buying real estate online. We own 2,000 domains, and we learned how to use those domains to drive traffic to where we wanted. Neither one of us went to school for that. That's just, you realize, okay, how are they doing that? And you just start researching and figure it out. Um, so, yeah, that, that's literally how it started. And the marketing, my first lesson in marketing was Howard Stern. I didn't know anything, but I knew that man had more traffic than anything else I knew of. So I made up a story and I literally started writing letters with pen and paper. I know nobody does that anymore, but I snail mailed him letters every day for two weeks, every day, every single day, even on Sunday, sat in the mailbox till Monday and he'd get two on Wednesday. Uh, I was determined to get on his show. And I said that I wanted to know why Playboy wouldn't shoot me. You got to try, but yeah. 
I knew they wouldn't. I know I'm not a Playboy-esque type model, but I thought that would get to him, that I wanted to be rated. Like, tell me why Playboy won't shoot me. Did you send them photos or tapes oh, of, yeah. of what you were of what you're doing? Yeah, photos, photos and my dot com, the research it. And I was coming down 401 in, in North Carolina uh, highway. And I get this call from Bubba Bowie, his yeah. his guy. And I, I literally had to pull over because I was like, I knew it was him. I know his voice. And that Friday I was in New York filming for E. I was on the last show that E, um, the E channel put out. It was the last one that Howard filmed and it changed my trajectory. So, so much here that I wanted to get into, but uh, were you nervous that Howard Stern, the greatest radio personality, most popular in the country, maybe even the world, frankly, was going to actually read a letter? He must get a lot of fan mail. I was, I was fine until the, the evening before our flight. I, I had worked myself up. My nerves were so jacked that I got sick really sick, like flu-like sick. Um, I'd lost my voice. And it was from just, it was over panicking, honestly. I seemed fine from the outside, but inside I was running and trying to figure out how I was going to handle this. What is he going to say? And I showed up, I got on that plane and I showed up and I'm sitting in the green room and I, I remember just sitting there and I'm praying. I'm praying so hard. I'm like, Lord, just give me three minutes. Give me three minutes of my voice because this is my shot. And I knew, I like at that moment, I couldn't. And I was mic'd up and I'm ready to go. And there, I can hear them coming down the hallway. I'm like, please, please I, I, I'll be better. I'll be better. Just give me a voice. Walked me down. They're like, you good? I'm like, mm-hmm. I was, I'm chloroseptic. I mean, I basically drank it. And I get out there and he, st- he asked me a question and I had a voice. I could answer. I was raspy, but you could understand me. And I, I just remember like, all right, we're on. Here we go. And, um, I got, I was on for like, I don't know, maybe five, six minutes. I don't, I don't remember. Maybe 10, maybe two. I don't remember. It was a blur. And, uh, he marked me up with markers. It was hilarious. It made fun of my hair. Cause I'm from Michigan. I had my big Aquanet hair. It was hilarious to me. And, um, we left and somebody asked me a question. My voice was gone. I couldn't speak for about four days after that. And our, cra- our service crashed for months. Howard Stern traffic. He changed, he changed, he put me on the map. He literally put me on the map. We were doing okay. You're like, Ooh, we made a thousand dollars. This is huge. Yeah. Howard Stern comes in and your website's making 50, $60,000 a month. I, I, we were all just like, Oh, I'd never seen numbers like that. I had I knew the adult industry was viable. I just didn't realize it was, that's back in 2004. Um, Akamai Technology is a company that I co-founded. Thanks for listening to part one of my amazing conversation with Brandy Love, one of the most successful adult film stars in history. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of my amazing conversation with Brandy. Yeah.